0: Welcome to CoinGeek Conversations. And my guest this week is the author of a new ebook called What is Bitcoin? It's a question which she reminds us we don't need to apologize for asking because Bitcoin's founder, Satoshi Nakamoto himself, admitted, writing a description of this thing for general audiences is bloody hard. There's nothing to relate it to. Well, we're going to see what we can relate it to today. So thank you very much for joining me, Liz Lowe. Hi, Liz.
1: Hi, Charles. Thanks
0: for having me. Thank you for doing this. And all the way from South Africa to London. Indeed. You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. Liz, you wrote the book for Bitstocks, which is a London-based Bitcoin investment firm. Um, What were you trying to achieve with your What is Bitcoin book?
1: Well, um, to tell you the truth, this is actually a, a, a rewrite on the topic. You'll have noticed that um, the subtitle is "It's the 11th birthday edition," and we a- we actually had a previous version of this ebook. So uh, in January, it was just this moment um, when we realized that day, this this is the day, the 11th birthday since since that first block was published, not since the white paper. And I thought, let's have a bash at it. It's it's now or never.
0: Well now, just so people know where you were coming from, you are actually a digital marketing and content strategist. So this was this a bit of a step outside your normal professional duties?
1: It depends how you look at look at it. Um, in my case personally, I have written for many other companies business to business articles and when it is rather an impersonal objective piece that you have to write of course that is that would be my duty but i don't like to have that impersonal stance towards my work so i need these kinds of challenges and so for me i embrace the opportunity to dive into this topic
0: because you really had to do a lot of research here i think
1: yes indeed it it has i would say uh, this ebook is the fruit of at least three years of research but um this this is the great thing about digital marketing we it's a digital resource that we can rewrite when it becomes necessary or outdated and we will continue doing so
0: i mean you're somewhat philosophical attitude to learning and growth and everything um, reminds me that you have one thing in common with, well, many things perhaps in common with Craig Wright, but one thing in particular is that you both studied theology.
1: <laughs> yes, that's true.
0: Do you think that has helped you understand the thinking behind Bitcoin at all?
1: Um, well, not in terms of the technology, but um, when I... A lot of the commentary around Bitcoin, the, it, Craig's motivation, um, how he places it within society, uh, I, I can I can place that within the the framework of what he calls in his book um, that was published this year uh, it, a classic Western education. Right. Um, when you when you look at the Greek civilizations. Um, Rome. What went right? What went what went wrong? Um, even Dostoevsky, um, which he has referenced, I and the Wesleyan um, mode of thinking that he incorporates in his um, work ethic, I I do relate to those aspects. Um, so, but. At the same time, that's just one level of right. looking, looking at his um, approach to Bitcoin.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's just go back to the beginning of the story, because I was really interested in the the way that you sort of started really from way back, um, talking about how the crypto sector was in no way sort of invented by the Craig Wright and Bitcoin, that it In the 1990s, there were a whole lot of cryptocurrencies. I mean, Craig has talked about this as well, to some extent, and um, that it was worth a trillion dollars, which is actually more than it's worth today. And then suddenly that all came to an end. I mean, can you just give us a little idea of what what was going on with all that?
1: (laughs) Well, actually, uh, my, my source for that section was Craig Wright himself. Right. <laughs> he, he delivered a presentation to a, a CoinGeek um, audience, a gaming audience particularly, in which you told the story. And so in, throughout my research, um, a lot of my sources were video-based. Right. And I, I would pick up these stories and... And I struggled with this idea, but how can I communicate these facts to get the audience to grasp its significance? When we we are in a market where there's so much misinformation and in, in conversations with friends who are in the film industry, also communicating such ideas, I realized I would have to tell some stories Because that is how, what humans, our our brain, this is what neuroscience tells us, we depend on stories to craft meaning. And um, although not every chapter has taken this narrative format, I, I certainly try to bring it in there, realizing that's how humans operate.
0: Well, yeah, I thought that worked very well. Uh, when you talked about Craig's initial sort of background, where he was working for an online casino, Lassiter's. Yes. And um, you described the sort of intellectual problem with online gambling, which is to do with the, the gambler not being ripped off or, and also knowing that they're not being ripped off because obviously you could program the electronics to come up with any kind of roulette uh, result or card being revealed that you chose. But you use this to explain what it was in Bitcoin that Craig came up with that would address this problem.
1: Yes, I, in this case especially, I realized, again, if I just um, explain the theory of what Bitcoin can do. It, it'll go over most of our heads. I had to relate it to a real life scenario. And fortunately, Craig told us all about it. Now, at the same time, I, I, I realize, um, especially since I've read his book, um, that, of course, there's a much bigger context even than the one I described. There were very uh, a lot of other businesses he also worked for that also inspired him to solve related quandaries. But in this case, this um, scenario of a gambling, online gambling or gaming platform, I think it's very relatable. And it can also be applied to, well, a a whole lot of um, intellectual property platforms.
0: So one of the interesting things that he came up with to solve this uh, issue, and as you say, others as well, um, was making the ledger public. And um, you've got this quote from Craig, Bitcoin's only innovation is that it's public, which I think is a great thing to highlight. And it's, it's interesting because in a way, it's counterintuitive. You'd think that something would be secure because it's private, particularly when it's in relation to money. Um, but, but what's clever is that he's seen the value in absolutely turning that idea on its head.
1: Yes, I, and it's interesting when I, when I wrote that chapter and I, I finally grasped that concept and him using the word, well, I, I believe it's simply that it's public, right? Almost downplaying it. It was like a cold a bucket of cold water in in my face because um just like most of us for the longest time i've been sucked into the mainstream bitcoin narrative of uh, it's cryptography and it's secret and you can you can get away with anything and you know that mysterious element it does um, intrigue everyone you know even if we're a law-abiding straight-faced person mystery appeals to us and it it makes it seem like if that is what bitcoin is it is special right but then to for me to come to the point where i realized it's not that it is open public and that's what it, it's its simplicity that is the breakthrough it it completely marked a shift in my thinking
0: one of the interesting things about Craig and how he explains things is that he spends quite a lot of time contradicting the the few things that people think they understand about Bitcoin. For instance, he loves to, to explain how it's not a cryptocurrency, which you go into as well. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure whether there's some sort of slight element of enjoyment he gets out of constantly telling people that they've got Different aspects of it wrong. Just as soon as they think they understand, you know, something basic about it.
1: Yes, but I also rather can relate that to his academic background. This is is something I had to learn the hard way in academia. Any argument you make, um, you to, to strengthen your argument, you might go for the extreme of that argument, but at the same time you can argue the polar opposite for the sake of balancing and exploring all opinions so that is definitely i can see he is not afraid of exploring extreme arguments now now craig is comes from this legal academic background and then there's social media where we all think my opinion my definition of a term that's how it is and then we simply miss the point.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and I think it goes back to that little quote that I uh, mentioned at the beginning where he, well, well, he as Satoshi, uh, admits how difficult it is to have people really understand what this is all about and how it works. Um, but you, I mean, you, towards the end of your book, you draw a comparison with the dot-com revolution. And the failure of quite a lot of uh, startups at that time and that we shouldn't expect too much of the early development of bitcoin bitcoin sv you're referring to really because that process of enterprise uh, entrepreneurship and then sometimes failure is part of the part of the growing of a new Um, a new sector tell us about that comparison you were making with uh, the dot-com startups
1: well i think um the important concept here is there's a distinction between the infrastructure and the applications that are built on top of it and the infrastructure is developing and the applications that are built on it today might be gone tomorrow but we'll see more sophisticated applications in future. So we, we have to make that distinction. And um, although it, it's not a metaphor I used in this book, in, in another of our blog posts on Bitcoin, I refer to one that Jeff Bezos used in the early days of the internet. And he compared the internet to the electric revolution where he explains that when electricity was installed in homes they didn't think of it as electricity, it was for lighting. It was to light up the home. And the only fixtures inside the house that was connected to the electric infrastructure were light bulbs. But this, of course, created the opportunity for inventors to invent loads of other electric applications. And so today, I mean, electricity, it powers almost everything around us. It's, it's so much more than that, just the light bulb. And so this, this is the distinction I, I've come to see is important to make, even though it's very exciting to see the applications running on Bitcoin SV today and their, groups, their uh, growth rate is skyrocketing. Um, certainly compared to any other Bitcoin node implementation. But it it can't compare to what we'll see in a year's time or five years' time. um, It's opening doors to a new
0: world. So are you saying that uh, the equivalent today would be money in relation to Bitcoin? That would be what you'd compare electricity and the light bulb?
1: Yes. That, that would be a very good um, analogy.
0: You have quite some quite big claims about the fourth industrial revolution. I mean, I know that is a sort of accepted phrase, but just for people who aren't familiar with it, basically you talk about water and, and steam uh, powering machines as the first industrial revolution. Then we had electricity powering machines. Then we had electronics and IT. And the fourth one, that we're looking forward to now is data transmission and virtual reality. Um, I mean, if I was to pour cold water on that, I'd say, well, that still is using electronics and it's still sort of using the internet rather than something completely different like the other uh, revolutions were from each other, perhaps.
1: Uh, That might be. I I don't think that that is quite the uh, significant significance of that analogy. Um, What I I do see, and of course, the interesting thing is, it's usually in retrospect where such historical phases become most clear. We, We don't pick it up as it's happening. But what we do know is that data is fueling the majority of these innovations. Um, and we see how the, the internet giants—Google, Facebook, Amazon—how heavily invested they are in data collection. And from that, one can tell a lot. I, I don't—I don't think they would just do it for fun. They—they—they they are building the applications of the future, and already we're seeing it spill into our homes, with all our devices collecting our data and. To, to a certain extent, it's great, the convenience. But what, what is the long, long-term long play of, of these innovations? It, we, we don't know exactly. And as long as the control of this um, revolution is in the hands of these giant corporates, we do not have a lot of control. And we, of course, don't have any transparency. We have no idea. So putting that together with Bitcoin's potential to run all the data applications globally, it has that capacity or it's building up to that capacity, but it also adds the transparency.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I think as you I completely agree that it's very hard to really characterize these revolutions and their significance when you're right in the middle of them. It's you're kind of trying to look, look back as a historian before it's even happened. On the one hand, Bitcoin, since it was kind of released into the world, has continued, even though there have been problems with exchanges and all that kind of thing. The basic mechanism of Bitcoin has seemed, as far as I know, to be completely robust and reliable, which is, pretty amazing for a a new piece of technology. On the other hand, you have also said that eventually computers will access all the data that humans have emitted throughout the entire history of humanity. Everything humanity has ever produced will be on the record available for us to interact with. I I find, I don't know, I'm just not sure about that. There must be things that we can never get back to. Um, Maybe from now on everything will be recorded, but... Do you think you're possibly overstating it a bit there?
1: Um, we're looking at a potential year. and so we're stating the extreme, the best right. case scenario. And of course, it's it's not a literal um, forecast, but we're we're looking at a at a potential that um, even even if we don't get back everything, of course, um, an interesting example is the Aramaic language that uh, a lot of the old testament was written in and also the biblical hebrew so the interesting if i remember my hebrew classes correctly there was a period where this tradition of transmitting the language from one generation to the next had um had had ended because of exile and um the traditions just came to an end for a period. And so there was nobody in living times that could translate this Hebrew accurately. And although the, the texts that are written in consonants only, I don't know if you're aware of that, Hebrew only has consonants in the, especially still in the modern Bible, Old Testament, the Torah, uh, that the vocalization that goes with those consonants were uh, they are not inscribed in the text. So after several generations, it was very difficult to pick that up again. They had to uh, actually recreate the the vowels that go with these Hebrew consonant words, mm-hmm. and um, what what made it is especially difficult, is that a lot of the words in the, in the Torah, they're only used once, Right. so you cannot uh, relate it to other contexts to see exactly what this word would mean. So, in a way, the, the Biblical Hebrew that I was taught in university is a recreation. It is an attempt to recapture what was lost. And the, for this reason, there, there are many texts that are in, in dispute. History is organic. It is, uh, and w- where things go missing, we we recreate it. But at the same time, at this vision of having everyone globally, giving them the opportunity to contribute to a central source from where everyone else might be able to draw information. Um, You you can just imagine the immense creativity that could flow from that. It's like going from reading books in the local library where you have a limited range to suddenly having the internet.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, in a way, the internet gives us a very sort of... um, rich kind of horizontal picture of knowledge today. But I think what you're talking about is adding to that the dimension of the past so that things won't get lost, even you know, even if they're in as rich a, a sort of form as they are on the internet today.
1: That's true. Libr- libraries burn down and even books that are reprinted, transcribed, uh, they, they change in translation. Um, and wouldn't it be great if we have that all, even those changes logged, and to learn from that, even to see how, how throughout the ages people reinterpret some texts. It's I think it's just fascinating the potential.
0: Just just to finish with, let's get back to some sort of grubby present day reality because. Bitstocks is, in, uh, is an investment business. It describes itself as a market advisory and cryptocurrency investment firm. And you, at the end of your book, um, you make the point that we shouldn't rely on, wouldn't, shouldn't have what you call an obsession with its short-term price feed. Um, so what I'm, I suppose what I'm asking is, what is the message to Bitcoin customers or Bitstocks customers um, in relation to your book and their relationship to Bitstocks? Presumably, Bitstocks wants people to buy Bitcoin SV through them.
1: That's a good question. Uh, I'll tell you, there's been some interesting hints that you might not have picked up on. Um, in Bitstock's mes- message and how it's um, evolved over time, we're starting to refer to the well, the, the bank we're building, Gravity, as a, a data bank. And so I think the, the, back to that metaphor of Jeff Bezos used uh, relating internet to electricity, for Bitstocks too, it, the buying and selling Bitcoin, trading Bitcoin short term or investing for the long term, that's, that's the first offering we, we have. But there is much more being built behind the scenes. And so just keep an eye out for the references to, to the data bank. And I, I will tell you specifically this um, chapter about the fourth industrial revolution was very much inspired by Michael's vision.
0: Michael Hudson.
1: So, yes, Michael Hudson, our CEO. So, when I communicate this vision of the fourth industrial revolution, that is what Bitstocks has its eyes set on, and that's what we're building towards being a part of.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's a great note to end on, Liz. Thank you so much, and... Um... Yeah, well, let's let's reconvene when uh, more can be revealed about the fourth industrial revolution and Bitstock's role in it. I look forward to hearing all about that, but thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Charles. It was lovely talking to you.
0: Thanks a lot. Bye now. Goodbye. Many thanks to Liz Lowe, and you can find a link to Lizzie's ebook that we were talking about in the show notes to this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. This is actually the second episode of series four of CoinGeek Conversations. So there's plenty to catch up on if you haven't been with us until now, and lots of good things to come too. So please like, share, or subscribe to CoinGeek Conversations. Thanks so much from me, Charles Miller. Goodbye.